You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lucas Cruz, and I serve with our uh, premarital mystery here. Um, this morning, I'll be reading 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles with me, if you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed me for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Church family, such a gift to be with you here this morning. Again, if you're not already there, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We started this book brand new last week, new series here in the pastoral epistles, uh, hoping to glean from God's word about why it is we're here, how we're to conduct ourselves, what this whole thing of the church is ultimately about, um, and why we do what we do. And so last week when we opened up here to 1 Timothy, uh, we saw right out of the gate why Paul had written this letter. Paul had appointed a young protege of his named Timothy to be installed as a pastor at one of the, um, at, at a church in one of the largest, most influential cities in the entire Roman Empire, and that is Ephesus. And he had sent him there for the specific purpose because there had become a problem of false teachers who were invading the church and leading the church away from the truth of the gospel which is about Jesus Christ and how he had come to save us by his grace. And uh, in doing so, Paul told Timothy to shut that false teaching down. These false teachers were getting into sidebar conversations. They were neglecting the word of God. They were downplaying what is the epicenter of our New Testament hope, which is in Jesus Christ. They were getting off into genealogies and myths and they were adding additional burdens additional laws to the church and telling them that they had to keep these laws in order to be saved by God. And it was heresy. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey, that's not why we're here. We are here as those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to steward the affairs of God, not to bring about speculations uh, of man but to steward the affairs of God. And the affairs of God is namely that his son, Jesus Christ, came to save us by his grace. 
so that we could be redeemed apart from the works of the law and be set free for his glory. That is why we are here. Now, Paul is not done with that exhortation to Timothy. He's gonna get back to it here in just a moment. But what is gonna happen, starting in verse 12 and following of chapter one, is that Paul's gonna respond to his critics, those false teachers who would have tried to convince Timothy, the pastor, that Paul was not a credible source of authority when it comes to the truth that the church is to hold to. And their criticism would go something like this. How do you know, Paul, that the primary purpose of the church is the proclamation of a gospel, a good news of grace that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, apart from trying to keep the tenets of the law. How would you know that, Paul? And Paul is gonna say in verse 12 and following, let me introduce you to exhibit A, my life. Let me show you what God did with me. You see this in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul says to his fellow critics, have you ever stopped to consider who it is that is delivering this message of grace that is found in Jesus Christ? Do you remember who I am, who I was? Have you forgotten my story? And he says this, I was the guy in verse 13, who though formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I want you to think about those three terms in describing who Saul of Tarsus was that we came to know before he was the apostle Paul. He was a blasphemer. Paul was a Pharisee. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. He was like the Supreme Court over Israel. He was the one that said, thus saith the Lord. And he was a blasphemer because the whole ministry of his was cursing the name of Jesus Christ. And he was a persecutor. Paul says, do you remember the guy from Acts chapter seven? When we were stoning Stephen, throwing rocks at him to kill him, because we thought he was a blasphemer and I was the guy who was holding everybody's coats. I was the same guy from Acts chapter eight who obtained letters of official decree so that I could go ravage the church and I could go to any Christian gathering and I could pull out any Christian I want. I could have them arrested, imprisoned and executed for following Jesus. I was that persecutor of our Lord's church. And he says, I was an insolent opponent. This is the strongest language of the three terms. An insolent opponent literally means one who seeks to violently destroy their enemy with no mercy. Paul says, this is who I was. Now you think ISIS was bad? Like this is who I was. My number one mission on earth was to exterminate every single Christ follower that I could hunt down. 
And I did it as Acts chapter eight described me with hearty approval. I loved seeing Christians put to death. Think about who this guy is. He says, and I did it all in the name of God. I I did it all in the name of God. If there was anyone who ever deserved the just condemnation of the law for committing the highest treason that could ever be committed by a human being, oh, it was me. It was me. But instead, verse 13 and 14, I received mercy. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, rather than getting what I deserved, what the law, the righteous requirements of the law would have demanded for somebody like me, which was death, instead I received the opposite. Note the two terms that he uses in that text, mercy and grace. These are two sides of the same coin, two opposite sides of the same coin. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. In this case, it should have been condemnation and death for Paul for what he had done towards God and towards God's church. And grace is the opposite It is getting what you don't deserve, which Paul received in Christ, the forgiveness and new life. Paul, his acting in ignorance literally means that the whole time that he was killing Christians, he thought he was serving God. Like Paul in all sincerity believed that he was actually on God's team when he was killing Christians the same way that those who were crucifying Jesus thought that they were serving God, to which Jesus prayed on the cross. Remember what he prayed? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They're acting in ignorance. They are completely deceived by the enemy. It doesn't mean they're innocent. doesn't mean that they're not guilty. It just means they were stupid in what they were doing. And only God's intervening mercy and grace could answer that prayer of Jesus on the cross, which was answered for Paul. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. God said, amen, I'll answer that prayer. I'm gonna do it in the apostle Paul. And note, God's mercy and grace that was given to him, it wasn't just sufficient for Paul. It wasn't just enough for Paul. Notice the word he used, it overflowed for him. Think about that for just a moment. It's not because there was anything that Paul had done, but it's because those attributes, grace, mercy, faith, and love, they are in accordance with the very nature of who God is. Remember in our study in Genesis, I mentioned one of the most oft-quoted verses in the entire Bible is Psalm 103.8 which says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, literally overflowing with love, steadfast love. God can only act in accordance 
with who God is. In other words, God has never done a more godlike thing than by forgiving this wretched man named Paul. And so now Paul drops in verse 15 the first of five trustworthy statements that we're gonna see in these pastoral epistles. This is the first of five of them that are gonna come. These are little micro creeds that had been circulating amongst the early church that were summarizing essential truths of the faith that the church were memorizing. And Paul is going to remind Timothy of one of them right here out of the gate. Paul says this statement that I'm about to give you, Timothy, it is one that should be embraced by everyone. There should be no one in the household of God who disagrees with this, and there's no one outside of the household of God whom this can't apply to. And here's the statement, verse 15, the staying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Here it is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Man, y'all better have that underlined in your Bible. That better be a dadgum magnet that's on your refrigerator right now. There has never been a more beautiful statement to summarize the essential purposes of God in Christ Jesus than that statement right there. Again, consider who's saying this, by the way. Paul, a former Pharisee. Do you know that Pharisees believed that even eating with a sinner was considered scandalous? You were never to do such a thing, let alone fathom that God would send his one and only son to save these little suckers. See, Pharisees thought they were above that. They thought they were righteous just by who they are and what they did. They did not see their need for God. Paul says this is why God sent his son into the world in the first place. This is why he incarnated. This is why he took on human flesh. This is why he lived a righteous life, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. This is why he substituted himself on a cross, absorbing God's wrath that was due us and put it on him. This is why Jesus came to save sinners. In other words, to all the false teachers out there, if you think obeying the law could save you, then why in the world would God even send his son, Jesus Christ? He came because the law could not save sinners. It could only condemn them. Jesus came because only he could save sinners. You go, well, how do you know, Paul? How do you know that's true? Answer, end of verse 15, because I am the foremost of them. The term foremost means first in rank. Paul literally believes that in the the school for vile and wicked people, he was valedictorian. This is who Paul was. This is his view of himself. Like I was the worst of all. Paul felt that there was no one who had broken the law of God more than he had. There was no one more deserving of condemnation and death for his rebellion to God than he. And yet God sent Jesus to save me. Why did God save Paul? Paul goes, there's a thousand reasons, but let me give you one of the biggest ones. 
Verse 16, here's why. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, the reason God chose to forgive and save someone as wicked and vile as me is so that the whole world can know that if he can do that with me, he can do that with anyone. If God can save me, God can save anyone. And not only that, the Lord chose in Acts chapter nine, this particular law-driven, church-persecuting Pharisee of all people to turn into the greatest preacher of grace the world has ever seen so that we would have no other conclusion but to say, if Jesus came to save sinners like him, then he must have come to save sinner like me. Oh, how we need to hear this as a church today, y'all. There are no doubt many in this room right now who feel that after all you have done, after everywhere that you have been, there is no way that God could love and forgive somebody like me. I know there are many in this room who feel that way because I have felt that way. And in that moment, the apostle Paul stands up in this text and he says, I beg to differ. Do you know my story? Do you know what I did in my rebellion towards God? And yet he's, his grace overflowed for me. So yes, it can overflow for you. And y'all, if you feel that way in here, you need to know there is a whole room of former rebels right now who could stand up right now and each one of us testify that the same is true for us as well. If you only knew our story, if you only knew how far we have gone and how much the grace of God came and cleansed us and forgave us. And I'm telling you, including me, this is what Isaiah talks about, Isaiah 59, when he says, the Lord's arms are not too short to save. This is what Jesus is talking about. John chapter six, when he says, all who will come to me, all who will come to me, I will by no means cast away. I will take anybody who acknowledges their need for a savior, who understands the due condemnation of their sin and the grace that I'm willing to offer them. They come to me, it's all theirs. I'll tell you, how, when, when, when you understand when you understand how far from God you've been and how much the grace of God has covered that sin, how do you respond when you find out that the king of heaven has forgiven and pardoned you for treason against him by sending his own son to die in your place? How do you respond? The answer is only one thing. It is falling on your face in worship. It's falling on your face in worship. Note the beautiful doxology of praise that Paul gives in verse 17. To the king of the ages. He's just got to stop for just a moment 
And he has just got to praise the Lord in this moment as he reconsiders his own salvation story of how God saved him. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask you something. If you're saved by your own works, according to the false teachers and their doctrine that they would give, who gets all the praise in that moment? If you're saved by doing your own good works to try to earn the favor of God, then what is verse 17 going to look like in your life? It's going to be all praise to you. But if you know that there is no way that you could save yourself, that the only way you're going to receive salvation is the mercy and grace of God intervening and giving it to you freely through faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you, then the only response you're going to have is verse 17. It's going to be worship, praise, and glory to God for doing it. Paul says the same thing when he wrote to the Ephesians earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, when he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as the result of your works, so that no one can boast. The whole point of God saving you apart from you is so that you can't boast in yourself. You'll only be able to boast in Jesus Christ. Man, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is my story. This is why I'm here right now, is to testify to you that God has saved me. Do you even know who I was in high school? Look at this kid. (laughs) Arrogant, smug, Did have a lot more hair. I'll give you that much right there. Look at that. I think I bought those glasses at Claire's. It's awful. I I was so far from the Lord. I had just been wandering. I had no idea where salvation was found. I was trying so hard in my own works. And it was just leading to more shame, more condemnation, more despair at a place where I literally wanted to end my life when I had a friend invite me to church for the very first time and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was shared with me. Somebody took me to a Brahms ice cream, shared the gospel with me for the very first time. Let me know, yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, you are deserving the full condemnation of God for breaking his righteous requirements. But the good news is that God so loved you that he sent his son for you to live the life you failed to live. He did it for you. He died on the cross to absorb the death that you deserved. And by taking your trust and transfer it from you and putting it in him, he imputes his righteousness into your account so that you can stand before a holy God, not because of any work that you've done, but for the work that he's done on your behalf. His blood has been shed to cleanse you of all your sin and righteousness. And the good news is that by putting your trust in him, he'll send his Holy Spirit to indwell you and start changing you from the inside out. I was not made perfect in uh, that next day, but by God's grace, I was freed and forgiven. And I'll never forget that response 
The day after I then got baptized in front of the church, the next day I walked in to my high school, J.J. Pierce High School in Richardson over here, 60-something percent of my senior class was Jewish. I walked into my fourth period history class with a giant, with a shirt that just, with Jesus dying on a cross on it, bleeding, I mean, awful evangelism tactic um, that said, if I'm okay and you're okay, explain this. And a giant blue cross that looked like Flava Flav with just Jesus written down. And I walked into that class and I put my hands up in front of all my Jewish fellow classmates. And I said, I got baptized last night and it's your turn next. All, all I could do, I could not contain the zeal of the fact that I as a sinner had been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. And all I wanted, even though maybe unsanctified, I wanted all my fellow classmates to experience it too. I've never gotten over that day. I've never gotten over what Jesus Christ has done for me. Yo, I'm not up here because I've earned some merit to be like clergy in a church. I'm simply here because I am a sinner who has been forgiven by Jesus Christ, who's been made new. And I wanna testify to you about the grace and the mercy and the love that is found in Jesus Christ that runs so deep to anyone who will acknowledge their need for it, it'll never get exhausted in your life. Again, to anyone who thinks they're beyond the mercy of God, you need to hear this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, these words are worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me and like you. Now, as beautiful and as important as that truth and example is in the Apostle Paul's life, that is actually not Paul's main point in this text. Instead, it serves to support his main point to Timothy, which is to say, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way by which sinners can be saved, then that gospel must be guarded by the Lord's church at all costs. We cannot depart from that truth that Paul is testifying to, that he's experienced in his own life, lest we lose everything. And so therefore, Paul reminds Timothy in verse 18, he picks back up on the point that we had talked about last week. This charge that I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, so like a spiritual father passing on the family business to his son right here, issued Timothy this main charge in this letter, which we saw last week in verses three through 11, you shut down false teaching, those who want to twist God's word and put additional laws on people and move them away from Jesus Christ. You shut that down in order to secondly, to steward the household affairs of God, which is in accordance to the teaching of sound doctrine that is in the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says that charge that I have issued in this letter, it goes hand in hand, Timothy, in verse 18, with the prophecies that were previously made about you. Now, this is a reference to Timothy's ordination when he was installed as a pastor. We're gonna learn more about this in the coming weeks, 
But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as well as in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it lets us know that it was the fellow elders there in Ephesus who had laid hands on Timothy and they spoke prophetic words over him concerning his gifting as a preacher and his role as a pastor in this particular place in Ephesus. And Paul's saying all of this to remind Timothy, your being here, your duty as a pastor wasn't just confirmed by us. Go back to your ordination. It was confirmed by God Almighty. God put you here to uphold this charge of the gospel of grace in Christ's church. God confirmed it. Timothy needed to remember this because he was getting just ambushed by these false teachers. They were not only splitting the church, they were beginning to discourage Timothy and convince him that maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe his whole being here was messed up. Timothy needed to remember all of this in order to persevere and fulfill the charge that he had been given. Sometimes we need to go back when we get off track, when we feel hard persecution and suffering coming after us, we need to go back and be reminded of how this whole thing started. Don't we? I know I do. I'll tell you this, when, when days such as tornadoes hit your church and pandemics go in and the whole world goes crazy and they all start coming after you, it can be tempting to think, did I come to the wrong place at the wrong time? And then I can go back. I can remember how clear it was when God brought me to Northway Church, when he affirmed me by a room of elders, when there, was a, when there was a 99 point something percent vote, four people said they didn't want you, but the rest did. I can go back and remember in accordance with the commands of scripture of what a pastor is to do, I can remember, no, I'm not here by accident. God put me here. And I can tell you the same applies in other areas of my life. When I start doubting my salvation, I can go back to that little punk-nosed kid that you saw in the back. I can remember how God got a hold of me. And I go, there's no way that was an accident. God spoke in time and he grabbed hold of my soul and he poured out his grace for me. He redeemed me. I can do the same thing in the hardship in my marriage. When we're struggling and my wife and I are having conflict, I can go back to our dating and I can go back to the vows that we made and I can remember, no, 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 God ordained this thing. When I'm struggling in my parenting, I'm struggling with our kids, I can go back, I can remember the birth of my children, I can remember the adoption of my girls and I can remember what God's word has to say about me as a parent. I can remember, no, 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 God called us to this. He's gonna be enough for us in this. And so when things get tough, I can know I'm right where I'm supposed to be in God's will, according to God's word. Now, FYI, this is why in chapter five, Paul's gonna exhort us not to rush the installation of an elder in Christ's church. Their calling has got to be confirmed. But Timothy, yours was confirmed. So hold this charge. The purpose of this reminder is there at the end of verse 18 and following that by those prophecies, by that ordination, you may wage the good warfare. 
holding faith in a good conscience. The fact is the church and her pastors, they're contending for the gospel. It is warfare. It is warfare. When you start preaching a gospel of grace, according to Jesus Christ, holding the sound doctrine in the word of God, I promise you, all hell is gonna come after you. It is warfare. Ministry is warfare externally and internally. They're coming after you. I can tell you this from experience. When I was in uh, Fresno, California, I'm laboring hard for gospel ministry out there. It's in California, speaks for itself. And we're out there and I'm, we're preaching the gospel. And I'll never forget, I got invited one time to go speak to a seminary. There's not any seminaries in Fresno. There's only one that's right in the middle of this place. And this particular seminary, I didn't know a bunch about it, but I know a lot of folks had come through it and they invited me to come in because they wanted to do a Q&A with me, with a local pastor in the city. And just, what do you wish you knew now? What do you wish you knew back then when you started ministry that you know now? Oh, that's low hanging fruit. That's easy. I get on there and they just kind of cue it up. And I'm like, you know, man, yeah, one of the things is I've learned how important being tethered to a local church is. I kind of know which hills to die on now uh, and which ones not to die on that I didn't know early in ministry. And, um, and then all of a sudden a hand goes up. What hills are you talking about? And I was like, well, I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, um, the hill of penal substitutionary atonement, the fact that Jesus was a substitute for us and absorbed the wrath of God. And I just, basic tenets of the gospel. I'm going, man, this, this is it. And all of a sudden this room just turns sideways. I was getting the weirdest questions I've ever been asked in my life. It felt like one of those scenes, it felt like the bar cantina scene in Star Wars. Right when you walk in, you're like, what is going on? This is supposed to be a room of Christians. And they were attacking me. They were like, they were making fun that I would hold to the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement as seen in Romans chapter three, that God would send his only son to be punished on my behalf. And... And, and that he would offer his son up as an act of grace, covering us with his blood. I, I'm getting assaulted by this. And so this thing wraps up and I head out of there. I'm like, that was weird. What in the world just happened? Fast forward the tape about a week later. My wife is in a Bible study in the church and a woman comes up to her and she looks at my wife and she goes, are you Shay Sumlin's wife? She's like, yeah, and she starts bawling. She goes, my husband set your husband up. That entire seminary had presets questions that they planted on purpose because they wanted to expose how foolish he is for holding to that truth. And I thought, oh my gosh, this actually exists? And I have much more to the story, ended up confronting that guy and ended up sitting with the president of the seminary. The seminary ended, president ended up getting removed because this entire institution had veered away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had departed from the faith. And to someone who would hold it, it would seem like foolishness to them. This stuff isn't theory, it is out there. 
It is out there. And that's in addition to the day-to-day warfare any of us are going to experience just by holding fast to the truth of God's word in a day like ours. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand uh, in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. How ironic that those words were written by Paul to this very church just years earlier. And now Paul's having to send a pastor in because the church won't abide by it. They were not putting up the armor of God. They were not standing strong. They were not contending with the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. They were joining with those forces. Church gospel ministry is spiritual warfare. We as a church cannot go passive and silent when it comes to the false ideologies and the teachers that are seeking to invade Christ's church to steal, kill, and destroy. It would be foolish for any nation to allow a foreign army to cross its borders and harm its people and then do nothing about it or act like it's not a big deal you would expect any nation to engage in defensive warfare. The same is true with the church. We must contend for the gospel in our day, and that is not going to be easy, but it is worth it. Why? Because Christ came to save sinners. Now, finally, we'll close here. Paul shows the danger in these last verses of what can happen when members of a local church turn away from sound doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See this? By rejecting these truths, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn to not blaspheme. I want you to notice two things about these false teachers. First, they had shipwrecked their faith. A ship is a vessel that is intended to get precious cargo from one point to its destination. That is the goal of our faith in stewarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a vessel that God has chosen to ship and and evangelize precious cargo in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For a ship to get wrecked, it takes wind, waves, and underground reefs to hijack it, along with carelessness, in considering those threats that may be out there. Spiritually speaking, Paul likens these threats in Ephesians to us being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're going to find out in 2 Timothy that these guys that are named here departed from the truth when they tried to convince the church that the resurrection of the dead had already occurred and they missed it. And so the first thing they do is they departed from the truth. They shipwrecked their faith. Secondly, because of this, they had to be removed from the church. Apparently, Paul, in one of his earliest, earlier journeys, had excommunicated these two men for their divisive, false teaching. You need to know, in Scripture, this is the hardest and it is the final process of what's called church discipline. And it is to be done with members of the local church who persist in unrepentant sin, whether it be immorality or heresy. And I want you to remember Jesus's words of what to do when this happens. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You go one-on-one and deal with it. If he listens to you, great, you've won your brother over. But if he doesn't listen, then you need to take two others, uh, one or two others along with you so that every charge that can be uh, given is established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, as scripture confirms. If he refuses to listen then, then go tell it to the church. Bring everybody in on it. Why? So that the church can engage him, right? But if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. You're going to assume in that moment that this brother or this sister is not a follower of Jesus. Three opportunities to repent and they won't usually indicates they may have an unregenerate heart. And so we're going to treat them as a tax collector or sinner, meaning we're going to go after them with the gospel. We're not going to treat them like a fellow believer. We're going to treat them like an unrepentant sinner who needs Jesus. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, when there was a guy that was committing sexual immorality with his stepmother, Paul says, even though I'm absent in the body, I'm not there in Corinth with you. I am present in spirit. And if I am there present, you need to know I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. The church wasn't doing anything about it. And Paul says, I'm going to have to issue a judgment for you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, you are to put him outside the church, let him have what he wants so he can get to the end of himself and he can turn and see his need for Jesus. That's the hope. This may seem harsh or unloving, but it's actually the most loving thing that you can do. Two reasons. One, for the, for the church who is being falsely influenced, if such a person is not disciplined, it allows the rest of the church to think that behavior is okay. Whether it's heresy or immorality, that we can embrace that. And that's not what Christ has set us apart for. And church discipline helps preserve the church's purity in its witness and its devotion to Jesus. Consider how many stories we've heard of in the news these days of churches that are aiding and, 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 aiding and abetting abusers in the church, whether it be members or pastors who are abusing people, they know about it and they either don't do anything about it or they bury it. That, all that does is hurt the church. That, that's, that person needs to be called out. They need to be asked to repent. They need to be removed 
from their position. They need to be removed from that and they need to go get help and healing in Jesus. But if you do nothing, it hurts the church. So church discipline is good for the church. It's also good for that individual who's sinning. The term here is reprobation. That's a big term that simply means to give somebody over so that they would come to their senses and then see their need for Jesus and return in repentance. That's why you discipline somebody. That's why you discipline your children. Not because you don't love them, because you do love them. And then hopefully you go, okay, you want that? Have at it. And the hope is that you'll finally see the error of your ways come to your senses like the prodigal son you would return. That is the hope of it. I can't tell you how heartbreaking this is. Every church that I've been a part of, including Northway, we have had to remove men and women who are dear to me because at some point along the way, they shipwrecked their faith and they are unwilling to repent. I have a list that I had made years and years ago of the top 10 spiritual influences in my life. And it was 10 men who were kind of my spiritual fathers that I'd written up. I made that list many years ago. I can tell you today, there are only three left on that list who are walking with Jesus. There's nothing more heartbreaking than that. Because you know that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to pour out his grace from you not so that you would just take it like hell insurance and keep living like you want, but so you can be made into a new creation. Despite all of that pain, our charge remains as a church to steward the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith contending for the gospel at all costs. Why? Because we know that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. And those of us who have tasted of his mercy and his grace and his love, we know there are still more to be reached. And we don't want anything to sidetrack us from our mission to go proclaim that gospel. Amen? That is why we're here. And this mission that we're on, to proclaim the gospel, it affects everything that we do as a church. And we're going to start seeing that next week in chapter two. But let's pray to that end. Father, may we never forget how you have come to save sinners like us. God, may we never get too far away from remembering of that moment when you broke through and saved us. God, help us to get downwind of ourselves. So we remember our sin and what it cost, the judgment that we deserved, and yet the grace that came our way. Lord, would you so embolden us, would you so overwhelm us with the joy of our salvation that as a church here at Northway, we would never let anything come in and detract us from boldly proclaiming the only gospel that can save a human soul, a wretched sinner like ourselves. And that is Jesus Christ who came to give his own life for us apart from our works so that we could be made new in him. God, for that end, would you glorify yourself here in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.